Greetings, 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 folks, and welcome back to your favorite podcast, The Africanist. I am your host, Bambanjai, and I hope everybody's doing well. I hope the semester is going fine so far, and it is always a pleasure to come back uh, with another episode and with a, another scholar of Africa and the African diaspora and beyond. As usual, do not forget to like us on social media, uh, follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, The Africanist, the letter P and the number one, The Africanist P1. That's our Twitter handle. And you can also follow our page, uh, our Facebook page, The Africanist. Today, I have the pleasure to co-host this episode with a colleague and a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Iman Ranayem. Uh, Dr. Ranayem is a scholar of indigenous studies, primarily focused on uh, Palestine and indigenous North America. She is currently a postdoctoral fellow in the American Culture Studies program at Washington University in St. Louis. And Dr. Hanayem earned her doctorate in English with graduate minors in American Indian Studies and Gender and Women's Studies from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Her work examines questions of displacement, settlement, and belonging in Palestine and indigenous North America through a framework of uh, interconnected settler colonialisms and comparative indigeneities. Uh, you can find some of her work in uh, Women's Studies Quarterly, Meridians, as well as Amerasia, uh, the Routledge Handbook of Refugee Narratives, and the Transmotion as the guest editor of a special issue on global indigenous narratives. Dear Iman, welcome to The Africanist, and thank you so much for co-hosting this uh, episode with me. Thank you so much for having me. So good to be here and to be in conversation and to do this with a friend. So I'm really excited. Today, we are very happy to welcome another friend of us and a colleague, Dr. Mohamed Abdul. So Iman, what, what can you tell us about uh, Dr. Mohamed Abdul and his scholarship? Uh, so it's my honor to introduce like Bamba said, another friend of ours, uh, Dr. Muhammad Abdul, who is a North African, Egyptian, Muslim, anarchist, interdisciplinary activist scholar of indigenous, black, critical race and Islamic studies, as well as gender, sexuality, abolition and decolonization. Um, he did extensive fieldwork experience um, or have has an extensive fieldwork experience in the Middle East, in North Africa, Asia and in Turtle Island. Uh, this year, he will be the Archipita Visiting Assistant Professor of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University, which is super exciting. Um, and formerly, he was an Assistant Professor of Sociology at the American University of Cairo, and also recently completed his um, postdoc, fel a postdoc fellowship at Cornell University, which is how we all happen to know each other. Um, his research stems from his involvement with the anti-globalization post- uh, Seattle 1999 movements organizing for Palestinian liberation, Tien Dinaga, Mohawks, and the sister territories of uh, Kanawaki, uh, Akewesane, and Kanetsataki. I am hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, Muhammad, but feel free mm. to correct me. Uh, during the standoff over the uh, Culberstone Tract, as well as the anti war protest of Iraq and Afghanistan the indigenous Zapatista movements in Chiapas and the 2011 uh, Egyptian uprising. He is the author of Islam and Anarchism, Relationships and Resonances that was published by Pluto Press in 2022. And it's the book we'll be discussing today with him. Thank you so much for being here with us, Muhammad. Thank you so much, Iman and Bamba. It's such an honor to be with you all. And The Africanist is one of my favorite podcasts. Um, so thank you very much for just hosting me and having me. Thank honor. you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead with our first question. First of all, this is a really exciting book, and I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about it, which I'm excited about sharing with you and also hearing from you. So um, I think both of us would like to hear more about 
the the story of the making of the book, the personal, let's describe it as a the personal and intellectual journey that led you to mm. it. Um, mm. And the kind of good things and bad things that came with it as well. Jazakumullah uh, thank you so much again for, for having me. Um, to me, it represents not just a life's work, but in so many ways a life. Uh, it includes, as you noted, uh, a man, a, um, a personal component, a movement component, an intellectual component. Um, technically, it's been, it's actually built on my MA thesis that I finished in 2009. Uh, so it's certainly over, you know, 15 years uh, in the making. Uh, but arguably, as I noted, it emerges out of a, a life uh, growing up in West Asia, uh, Northern Africa, uh, being so profoundly, obviously, as many Muslims, uh, every Friday prayers, every Juma prayers, being connected to Palestine, being connected to uh, the cause that is Kashmir, um, against contemporary Hindu Tava, um, Chechnya, um, and out of it, a need to understand one's own sense of identity, um, given the internal war, arguably, that uh, all of us Muslims, particularly in modernity, have been confronting um, in relationship to sort of Orientalist conceptualizations of Islam, uh, where hyphenated uh, Muslim Canadians, Muslim American narratives, etc., or neoconservative conceptualizations of Islam, Um you know, the very uh, new fundamentalist, dare I say, um, uh, Al-Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood, uh, even Daesh to some extent, right? And the internalization of reactionary politics as a consequence of colonialism and imperialism. That's very violent, in, in, as Fanon had noted. It's, it's an inherently violent act that way. So grappling with an understanding of Islam, growing up learning the Quran uh, with Sheikh Jilani, who is a, a, a Shiite elder of mine, uh, over a hundred and something years old. We really didn't know what his real age is. Uh, I never really identified as a Sunni. He was a Shiite. I didn't actually realize that until he passed away in my first year of engineering uh, when I became a settler on Turtle Island in um, uh, 1997, as a matter of fact. Um, <clears throat> I had to leave Egypt, uh, despite the fact that I'd hoped that I'd go there to study medicine or pursue medicine, uh, after my life in West Asia. Um, but unfortunately I had to leave for personal circumstances. One of which is I, I wrote an article, uh, regarding American imperialism, uh, neocolonialism in Egypt, Palestine, particularly in a relationship to the American University of Cairo. So it's very ironic that I ended up working there for a little bit of time. And, um, and yeah, and, and, and that's how my journey to becoming a settler, uh, in so many ways, um, happened. You know, my, my parents were quite weary. Uh, I, I grew up, you know, again, with uh, my parents were, you know, although they, they're not, they didn't grow out of the humanities or, uh, if you will, the social sciences. You know, one is a physicist and a chemist, my mother, and, and my father is a petroleum engineer. Uh, and I started off as an engineer, but nevertheless, they had a very expensive library. Uh, you know, from books by Fadou Tukhan, uh, Najib Mahfouz, um, um, you know, Arab poets, uh, uh, and 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 Muslim uh, and Muslim scholars and thinkers. Malcolm X's, you know, autobiography, Alex Haley's sort of autobiography of him. Uh, so, so it's always there, very much the 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 impulse, the impetus, if you will, to to take that route. I always loved writing. I always was a huge, you know, uh, advocate and and very fond of reading. Uh, but also is my movement experience too, right? Um, going to Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Um, I got a scholarship in Montreal, but my parents thought that, you know, given the Muslim community and the fact that it was well established in Kingston, my mother had taught half the, you know, engineering department or at least had contacts with them uh, at Queen. So they figured that a smaller city, if you will, or town uh, would be more suitable. Um and Kingston is a very magical place because it straddles, you know, uh, Quebec and Ontario. Uh, you know, we're I'm not too far from the Mohawk Reserve, uh, Tandanega, and the sister territories of Aquasasne uh, and Panasatake. 
uh, getting to know indigenous elders and having indigenous elders shortly after I arrived to the anti-globalization protests and so on and so forth. Post that that particular kind of mobilization, the anti-war protests, uh, um, particularly post Seattle, um, and really being just involved in land defending. You know, I was one of a few people of color let alone Muslims at Queens, probably white university that has drastically changed over the past two decades. It's it's practically where I grew up, where a sense of belonging, if you will, I wouldn't call it home. It's, it's very difficult to talk of home, um, particularly as a settler, as a diaspora. Um, So-called Canada will never be my home. And, uh, will never accept me, and even if I fulfill its white supremacist ideals. So yeah, uh, for all these different manifestations or the confluence of all these uh, different reasons, uh, in a certain sense, that's how the book came about. Thank you, Mohamed, for uh, that elaborate response. Now, in this book, of course, you uh, deal with several central slash key concepts, including mm -hmm. anarchism, but one that really stood out is uh, the concept of anarcha-Islam. So mm -hmm. why anarcha-Islam rather mm -hmm. than just Islam? Could you flesh out this concept for us and its relationship with Islam? As Thank you very much, Yabamba. This is such an important question. As I, I believe, allude, maybe even directly, I, I do believe I directly say it in, 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 in the book, in, but I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase it differently now. What's in a name, nothing and everything? You know, Islam, Muslimness is an empty signifier. What are the ethical, political commitments that ground these contrived, in a certain sense, modern identities? So, of course, to me, it's Islam. Uh, you can call it Islamatismo. You can call it anarcho-Islam. Some people have proposed anarcho-Islam. I called it anarcho simply because I wanted to counter the sexist, misogynist, queerphobic tropes that are often projected onto Islam. To me, Islam is inherently not only... Um, uh, anti-materialist, uh, anti-capitalist, anti-racial capitalist, but very much uh, horizontalist, is very much anti-authoritarian, is very much anti-hierarchical. We have concepts and practices within Islam that inform not only the polemical, well, anti-capitalist or anti-authoritarian, but actually non-authoritarian, non-capitalist. Um, and that becomes very important to realize, particularly from a Quranic perspective. I particularly predominantly use the Quran because all Muslims, regardless of whether you're a nation of Islam, you're an Ahmadi, you're a Sufi, uh, you're a Shiite, you're, you're a Sunni, across the different madhahib, um, if you will, um, sects, and so on and so forth, ultimately contend with the Quran. Ultimately, we all share that book. Um, the Sunnah, yes, there are disagreements with regard to that insofar as the prophetic oral tradition and practices. Uh, if you will. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I, I see and I read the Sunnah in the broadest possible sense to include, you know, uh, Shiite texts. Uh, I mean, ultimately, what is Islam insofar as the intersection of, again, religion, spirituality, Iman, all that are faith otherwise. These are all interrelated concepts within Islam that intersects with and play with culture. Uh, but that's also becomes very important to understand from a political theological perspective. What is Islam's position with regards to capitalism, for instance? I mean, you've got Muslim Brotherhood members, uh, organizations, communities, presidents, as Ordogan, that argues for a capitalist Islam, right? Uh, the other element of it is, of course, you know, dialectical materialism, as much as I appreciate, you know, uh, Marxisms in general, uh, if you will, and, and the expanse of history, particularly people of color Marxists, right? I mean, we have Ali Shariati and so many different examples, if you will. But nevertheless, the, the question of the so-called state or the modern conceptualizations of the state uh, become very fundamental. And unfortunately, I feel in so many different ways that historical materialism, scientific epistemic, if you will, doesn't account for metaphysical actualities. And this is why in so many ways there is Islamophobia on the left. We fetishize Martin and Malcolm, for instance, on Martin Luther King Day or when we were commemorating these, these, you know, uh, these towering figures. But we forget about their political theological message and how they grappled and actually engaged in a metamorphosis of an understanding of their own traditions, be it Christianity or Islam, and not based on your again, American conceptualizations of Christianity is, had been usurped underneath Constantine and weaponized as imperial modes of conquest, right? So we need new ways of telling as so-called leftists, as socialists, as communists, as, 
you know, anarchists as Marxists and anarchists are Marxists too, in so many different ways, as Herschel Walia always says. But we, we, we need to connect with the other that is the world, uh, with uh, the metaphysical, the ethereal, the cosmological. Land is a spirit, it is a subject, it's not an object. Um, and that needs to be our origin point. But even from a more expansive uh, uh, dimension, what so-called anarcha Islam is out to do, just uh, for, I guess, those that are listening, it is developing, if you will, an anarchistic reading of Islam vis-a-vis -vis the Quran, an Islamic reading of anarchism. And not anarchism as it is understood as a 19th, 20th century movement, political philosophy that emerged out of Europe, but actually arguing that this Islam is inherently anarchistic. So what is the point of me calling myself a Muslim and an anarchist, a Muslim anarchist or an anarchist Muslim? What comes worse? Uh, first, sorry. Right. So it's a polemical move used to address, yeah, uh, various different orientations, movements that are supposedly conceived as being disparate from one another. Um, uncongruent, uh, what could connect Islam and anarchism, and actually binding them together. Um, it's moving beyond the dimensions of nationalism. It's a book that is seeking to teach then um, reteach Islam to Muslims and reteach this, uh, uh, or reintroduce not, uh, Muslims to Islam or a different view, political, theological view of Islam, and teach not so-called non-Muslims with regards to Islam equally. And so, yes, it's developing this Quranic interpretation, proving using the Quran how actually Islam is inherently anti-hierarchical. It's inherently uh, non-capitalist uh, and going through the theological arguments, but also dealing with movements. Uh, this is a movement book in so many ways. So it isn't just interdisciplinary. Why is it a movement book? Because I have to think about the historical significance of 1492. Well, what happened in 1492? Muslims and Jews were being evicted from Spain, persecuted, murdered, killed, forcibly converted underneath the hand of the sword. Meanwhile, that coincides very much with the Colombian conquistador invasion, as Tiffany Lethabo King refers to it, Afro-Indigenous scholar, um, 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 uh, of... of uh, the settler colonial project and the commensuration of the settler colonial project beginning from the Caribbean upwards. Uh, Muslims and Jews were being labeled as savages and heathens and godless and so on and so forth prior to even, you know, indigenous people. And moreover, a third, a fifth, and we know that this is a fact of the transatlantic slaves uh, who experienced the Middle Passage were Muslims from the Iberian Peninsula on the west coast of Africa. How can we not then talk about Islam? How can we then adopt a secular attitude that has been adopted by a lot of leftists, including Arabs and Muslims and so on and so forth? So it, it's countering the liberal project of that way, and it's trying to think in, in decolonial terms with regards to Islam. I'm interested to hear more about how, perhaps for the listener as well, like thinking about how you define anarcha Islam in relation, you know, in the book, you do it in relation to Canada and the United States, which are two settler states, right? right. But my impression, and I think that you, um, you refer to it multiple times during the book, where it, it sounds that anarcha Islam is also um, a global, has a global, mm -hmm. potentially, potentially, or already having global impact, right? And so how do you see America Islam interacting or more futuristically uh, play out in other contexts like Africa, Asia, or even Europe, for instance? Right. Um, thank, thank you so much for that question, Amen. It's a very important one. Um, as I always say or have been saying for quite some time, my choices as a Muslim are not going to be constrained between a crusading Zionist Wahhabi imperialist alliance on the one hand, because again, to me, um, the settler colonies, white supremacy, manifest destiny, doctrines of discovery, um, uh, enlightenment is inherently white supremacist. It, it's based on the foundations, but a secularized one of white supremacy. But, and so we can't take spirituality out of the equation. But then on the other hand, my choice is not going to be a Russian-Chinese aspiring alliance either. 
why? It's very simple. I, I'm sorry that Russia mobilizes Islamophobia and has mobilized and continues and so far as Chechnya. We have Indian Hindu Taba that mobilizes against Kashmiris and Dalits, uh, a settler colonial project there in so far as Kashmir. Uh, we have China mobilizes Islamophobia in so far as the Uyghur. Uh, we have even Buddhist Myanmar mobilizing Islamophobia insofar as the Rohingya. Um, we have now what is going on within the Sahel region. Uh, I'm not, we can, but I mean, we, we can't get into the discussion coup, not coup, uh, these military generals that are taking over, that are systematically already part of the regime, and they decided to embrace a further anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist, anti-French sentiment in the case of, for example, Niger, which is perfectly fine. Of course, that's a very valid ethical political perspective, but it's also very much a region that is filled with Islamist insurgencies that need to be taken into account. So Islam is a constant constellation that has happened since 1492 because I see modernity as premised upon quintessentially Islamophobia and an ongoing project that is very much bound by and with a crusading logic that Zionism relies on. Uh, again, you know, um, settler colonialism in as far as the, the US and Canada served in Australia, New Zealand, etc., serves as the blueprint for Zionism. Zionism is not where it begins. It's, 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 it's where it, in a certain sense, concludes, if you will, uh, and remains uh, very much so in a certain sense in South Africa. And so the limitations of post-colonialism and what post-colonial liberation had meant in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and we have so many examples from, you know, Nat Turner, you know, from, again, um, uh, Patrice Namumba, uh, Nukrama, Walter Rodney, um, uh, all these towering figures, Kwame Turi, and so on and so forth. But even somebody like Kwame Turi had said, are people who have never seen religion as the opium of the masses, that, of course, coming directly from European culture for African religions, revolutions go hand in hand. If one is truly religious, one must be a revolutionary, right? So we have all these examples of Nat Turner, Malcolm that I mentioned, uh, Mel Kay, but also Tolstoy and Shariati, Dorothy Day, Jackie Lul, uh, Abdul-Dar uh, uh, Jafari, uh, uh, just to name a few. All these, if you will, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, socialisms, anarchisms, Marxisms. But then the question of the state becomes very much a stumbling block because what happened historically in so many different ways is while a lot of Muslims would concede that yes, Islam is inherently anti-materialist, when it comes to the question, if you will, to the state and what exactly the state is, in my humble opinion, and historically speaking, it is inseparable from racial capitalism. The, the fundamental question that we have to ask ourselves is, can the state, is the state an instrument of liberation, yes or no? How can that be when it is based on a monopoly and is the ultimate purveyor of violence? How can it be when it is inherently hierarchical, when it is inherently patriarchal, when it is inherently, if you will, despite all the attempts to homonationalize it, pinkwash it, queer rights, queer marriage, and so on and so forth, that becomes used as an imperial form of conquest. But it's also a question that Islamists themselves have grappled with in so many different ways. And how Muslims, again, misunderstand the basic Muslim concepts that exist within Islam. Let's take the example, for instance, as the dehistoricized view that such a thing as the Islamic State exists. There is no concept of the Islamic State. This is a concept that was developed in modernity. And Muslim scholars particularly rely on the pre-modern conflation of the medieval concept of dawla or duwayla, which is misinterpreted as the state. But dawla actually and post-colonialists have used this term to refer to every individual Arab state, for a predominantly Muslim state. And it's deployed even by uh, movements as Daesh that are supposedly so well-versed in Islam as a dawla al-Islamiyya. But this is a misconstruing of Islam's actually uh, 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 meaning or Quranic usage of dawla and its material significations. Why? Because dawla actually stems from the Arabic verb dal, which morphically as well as semantically falls between the verb dar, to rotate, and the verb zal, to go away or to fall. So it mainly revolves around actually notions of temporality, change, rotation, as opposed to a fixed order, which a nation state with its boundaries that colonialism and imperialism itself has produced, etc., relies on. But we didn't have a word for state. 
The 59th chapter of the Quran, chapter Surah Al-Hashr, for instance, in verse 7, speaks of the Prophet's dis distribution of war and as, as a form of dawayla, if you will. The same thing with uh, Surah Ali Imran, verse 140, right, where the Quran mm. is speaking about the transformation of one's condition. One day one has their health, another day they do their health as a form of dawayla. And so we misunderstand as Muslims, and to go back then to why is anarcha Islam useful, because it is focusing on elements of what that's or what, where, where besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala vis-a-vis the principle of tawheed, which is one pledges, when one becomes a Muslim, one pledges Tawheed, which is I swear by allegiance or swears only allegiance to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I worship no nation, no state, no leader, no political party, no family, no blood ties. My loyalty is strictly to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the ethical political foundations that Allah supposedly wants me to live by. Okay, besides that conceptualization of sovereignty in Tawheed, the only manifestation that exists theologically insofar as its manifestation on this earth is vis-a-vis actually not the concept of the way <clears throat> it's vis-a-vis -vis the concept of the um and we can talk about what that concept is right so even the concept of the caliphate that's based on a misconstruing of again that's a post frame post prophetic framework of governance that developed after the prophet said and i speak extensively about this concept because actually it's derived from the quranic concept that we're al khulafa and all muslims even the most orthodox will say that and we can agree with that that we're all caretakers okay then why is there a need for a single individual leader a single political party a single state to supposedly establish this worldwide global ummah so it's been a question that Islamists have been contending with. Can we use the state as a means to establish the ummah or can it not? And of course, it has led to, again, the Muslim Brotherhood type of thought that we saw in Egypt in 2011, that we see with Erdogan, that we see in so many different examples. And on the other hand, it has led to the Al-Qaeda, Daesh, ISIS sort of approach. And this is what attracted or what led to hundreds of thousands of Muslims, young, 13, 14-year-olds, elderly, Locking and leaving their comfort or life because the 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 glory the dream of the um is something that in so many ways Muslims are weaned on, if you will, as with regards to Palestine from when we are born. Oh well, we all belong to this global polity. But the Ummah tradition, they also didn't just include Muslims based on the Medina Charter. It included Jews, Christians, or Astrids, all who are spiritual and bound by one thing besides spirituality the ethical political commitments upon which their Judaism, their Islam, their Zoroastrianism, their Sabianism, etc., is mm -hmm. in relationship to. So th that's why anarcha Islam becomes global to go. Excellent. So I'm going to piggyback on the last part of your response and also your, your previous response about Anarcha Islam being a concept involving movement. Part of the book kind of mirrors your personal engagement with the 2011-2012 Egyptian uprising or, or movement. So you were at uh, Tahrir Square protesting against the Mubarak regime. Can you tell us more about your involvement and experience with the uprising? It's very effective. I I, I think uh, both of you perhaps have even noticed the change in tone. And I believe it was chapter five when I'm talking about sort of the delusion of nonviolence and black power and red power and the concept of jihad and qitar in Islam. And that was really based on my projection or going back if you were, it was probably the hardest chapter that I had to do. The, the, the tone of the book really changes there. Uh, so uh, Tahrir is very important to talk about. Um, Egypt, historically, geopolitically, in so many ways, uh, and I don't mean to magnify but its significance, it's just historically true, it's been the wellspring of pan-Arab and in so many ways pan-Islamist thoughts. And so what happens in Egypt ripples across. Nobody planned, none of us planned the Egyptian uprisings. The revolutions and uprisings generally aren't don't operate that way uh for those who don't know or uh, perhaps to the younger and memory doesn't serve them right but even including egyptians now that have experienced a kind of historical amnesia because they're no longer taught about 2011 because 2011 now is depicted by the ongoing regime as um 
a Muslim Brotherhood conspiracy. But so to correct or to reorient those facts, uh, Tahrir happened uh, coinciding with Tunis, coinciding with other uprisings, uh, be it in Syria, be it in Bahrain. It wasn't a teleological linear thing. Sure, uh, each were inspiring one another in similar and in different ways, in distinct ways. Tahrir was magical especially the first 18 days when we went down, we were protesting uh, the brutal uh, murder of Khalid Saeed, a middle-class youth uh, by police officers in Alexandria. Khalid Saeed uh, signaled to the middle class, because we have to be honest about the fact that this is a daily recurrence, police brutality in Egypt and elsewhere, everywhere in the planet. Uh, it's a patriarchal, misogynistic institution. It's not out to say uh, to, to safeguard uh, and to serve and to protect by any means. It's it's based on the concept of slave catching, after all. Um, and but it's signal to the middle class. So poor people experience this every day. Uh, disenfranchised queer people, dissident people experience this every day. But it's signal to the middle class that uh, you are extremely vulnerable. And so calls to protests were being made. Um, uh, a website that was started off by Google executive at the time, programmer, uh, Wael uh, uh, um, and it began to go viral. Uh, people didn't know whether others would show up in the streets. Uh, the Mubarak regime cut off the electricity. They cut off the internet. Uh, we started going door to door. We started establishing neighborhood councils. Uh, we started to mobilize in Tahrir. It was very violent, as I noted. And it's a very Fononian fact. Did people die? Absolutely. Uh, for old, uh, for new grass to grow, some of the old must die. But that's part of what we're exposed to anyways in terms of the brutality of colonialism every single day. I mean, sexism, racism, collateral violence that we replicate, right? The state is not this abstract entity that exists over and above us, uh, but rather we already govern one another as human beings on the latter level vis-a-vis -vis the capillary relations and the asymmetries of power that exist between uh, all of us. So again, this is why we say all power to the people and not just power to the people. But um, uh, so there was a great deal of fear uh, Egyptians thought that they had overcome that fear. That is, and I said this at the time, and I continue to echo this, this is absolutely not true given the catastrophe and the state that we are in now. Um, the revolution, the so-called uprising, was not based on alternatives, it based on the removal of the dictatorship that has lasted for 30 years. Um, you know, there's no such thing as pure totalitarianism. Again, wherever there's power, there's resistance. It's a Foucauldian dictum. So we always had that power within our hands. Nonetheless, uh, youth, all of us were bringing, you know, um, tools, equipment from home uh, to clean the streets, uh, literally scrubbing the sidewalks, you know, claiming ownership over streets that were always already ours. How ironic is that? In comparison to where the state in which we're at now. Um, but unfortunately, a revolutionary spirit was not neutralized. Yes, of course, we burned out in 99 police stations. Anybody that thinks, again, that this was a so-called Twitter, Facebook, nonviolent revolution, like I said, the internet was cut off. There were clashes. There was the Battle of the Camel, in which literally the regime had mobilized uh, goons, thugs, referred to as Baltagiyah here in the slang in, in the Egyptian dialect, uh, on camels, literally, you know, and the Battle of the Camel is referred, you know, obviously refers historically also to the Battle of the Camel that Muslims had experienced, in which there was almost a potential for sectarianism, if you will. Clashes did happen, people did die close to 1,300, more than that. There were bodies that were being thrown in the Nile River, river that we were fishing out at certain points. Snipers, when they were shooting, they were shooting for people's eyes using live ammunition. So this wasn't a bunch of just tear gas and water cannons and, and pincer moves uh, in enclaves to, to entrap protesters, if you will. The young, the old, uh, the poor, the rich, you had Nasserites, you had Sadatists, you had Muslim Brotherhood, you had queer people that marched with the pride flag, you had an anarchist hat, you had the revolutionary Marxist Lenin and the socialists. Uh, whatever it is that you can imagine of uh, different groupings, if you will, groupsicles uh, existed, uh, but all with one goal, uh, mobilized underneath a nationalist trope, and we all know the pit traps of nationalism uh, as a sort of an elite sort of bourgeois discourse that's replicated, unfortunately, uh, within post-colonialism and hence and post-colonial subjects and hence the very limitations of, of 
the post-colonial mentality and the need for decolonization and the conflation between anti-colonialism and post-colonialism and what decolonization actually is. And the reason is that folks wanted to remove a dictator down with the regicide, they said with Mubarak. But what and who one of us does not have a mini Mubarak, a mini Obama, mini Trump? Uh, removing God, removing in an ancient sense, removing Mubarak, who is a certain sense of Pharaoh, does not displace God's space and power. Rather, it made us all demagogues vying for God's displaced space and power. So revolutionaries or people that were involved in the uprisings did not talk about the differences. They did not exercise usul al-ikhtilaf that I discuss in Islam or ethics of disagreement in relationship to one another. They were just after one thing, the Egyptian uh, Muslim and Christian, the slogan is we're all one hand and so on, but we did not talk about alternatives. We did not build alternatives. Um, revolutions involve practical questions. What are you going to do with a nuclear plant? What are you going to do with the army? Are you even going to have a police or are you going to adopt an abolitionist perspective? Yeah. What are you going to do when somebody gets sick? What are you going to do when 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 there's a need for food? Um, what are you going to do in so far as Palestine, which was a huge, you know, hugely highly represented, particularly given the context of Egypt. I, um, um, I, I want to interject here and just like, mm -hmm. I really appreciate how you laid it out, you know, the the context of the Egyptian revolution as creating some kind of vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. Where people are toppling a dictator, but not necessarily thinking. I mean, I wouldn't say it that way, but I would say, you know, you, you do the revolution and and what happens after the revolution mm -hmm. is that there's this space that needs to be filled, right? And that's mm -hmm. the space from, you know, our experience with post-colonial, post-coloniality ends up being filled with new nationalisms and new mm -hmm. statehoods and all of these um, um, unhealthy structures, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think this is a good point for me to ask about you have these concepts that you use throughout the book. Some of them are inspired by your experience as someone who was part of the Egyptian revolution, as someone who comes from Egypt or comes from the Middle East and um, has extensive knowledge of the of the region and has experienced it and has on a very personal level as well. And then you have these concepts that come out of your um, learning experience and education and exposure to um you know you mentioned canada and the united states right mm -hmm. and one of these concepts that come out of your um your political intellectual and deeply personal investment in indigenous struggles is the concept of indigeneity mm -hmm. and so i i would like it i would like it if you can um define to us how which and and the reason why i associate it with the vacuum you know with the post-revolution mm -hmm. is that that is your that is part of your solution, mm -hmm. um, indigeneity, or what you call at some point re-indigenization. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you define indigeneity? How do you see it? And particularly think thinking, how do you define it to those who are not um, um, very familiar with it, or it's a very important aspect of who they are? So particularly, let's say, um, Native folks in North America. So outside of that, in relationship to the context of the Middle East in relationship to the global context. Um, how do you define that concept and how does it play out into uh, Anarcha Islam? Thank you so much. That's such an important question, Amen. Um, indigeneity to me, as I learned uh, from international indigenous scholars and not just indigenous scholars with it, because we tend to think of indigenous as just strictly, and this is a compartmentalization, provincialization of sort of the concept. Indigenous people is only applicable to the context of um, Turtle Island, if you will, or Australia, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, but of course, Palestinians are indigenous to the land. Um, the, to me, indigeneity is an analytic. So it's also a non-racial, non-ethnic concept uh, as well. I associate it mostly with the concept of fitra in Islam, the inclination, again, to do good, because unlike sort of at least the Euro-American Christianity, whereby one is born in a condition of sin, the original sin, in Islam, it's exactly the opposite. We are born inclined to uh, with a sense of indigeneity, to connect with um, our Mother Earth, uh, to value community, to uh, not fetishize individualism, um, uh, to to embrace a sort of femininity um, um, and the queerness that the world, if you will, ha has to offer us. 
Um, now, of course, you know, um, Eve Tuck and, and uh, Wayne Yang wrote that very famous uh, uh, um, piece, uh, decolonization is not a metaphor that gets thrown around, right? And of course, they were pointing to the irony that decolonize, they can't really decolonize school curriculums. How are you going to decolonize the academy? It's not about just extra, you know, including more content. The academy is a neoliberal institution, hierarchical, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, but the fact of the matter is that the reason I say that indigenous and analytic, Fitra allows for that is because I want a way for settler diasporas or diasporic settlers, Swana, Muslim in particular, Southwest Asians, North Africans, and so on and so forth, um, to be able to embrace or re-envision their kind of indigenate. Settler colonialism, of course, it obscures, it, it's a very delirious dream. It's a nightmare, actually, as Malcolm called it. But it allows us to re-envision who and what we are. But I want to allow an opportunity for diasporic settlers that aren't necessarily attuned to Islam, are confused, have internalized this war of identity that I spoke about at the beginning, to embrace a certain kind of indigeneity without playing into what Philip Delorier refers to, because I'm very conscious with regards to that, as playing Indian or even what Muslim feminist scholar Shireen Razak refers to as a race to innocence. You know, Tuck and Yang note that, you know, strategies in which white and brown settlers are, 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 attempt, are attempt to assimilate, right? And they have internalized cultures of whiteness. You know, it, it is a sense of an abdication of the fact that they're living on stolen land, that we are Zionists on stolen land. We're going out, we're marching free, free Palestine, but okay, well, we're on stolen land ourselves. Where do we figure into that equation, right? And when we do deal with it, we deal with it out of a sense of guilt, we really, which really doesn't heal or do anything to indigenous people because it has no material ramifications insofar as dealing with our power and privilege, right? So there are moves to innocence, and we see, of course, white people doing this all the time, Elizabeth Warren, Nancy Reagan. We see Bernie Sanders, you know, when his comments on with regards to you know, false equivalency insofar as Palestine, you know, and, and so on and so forth, all these race to innocence narratives, right, that include evoking sort of Indian blood quantum narratives, registries, policies, you know, gender settler nativism, Indian grandmother complexes. Oh, well, I am descendant of like an Indian grandmother as a way to claim a certain kind of like indigenous identity. And Elizabeth Warren, of course, she lied with regards to that, right? And this is a huge problem within indigenous communities, certainly. And, and you know, there's a lot to say about that. But Audra Simpson, a Mohawk scholar, Audra Simpson writes that settler colonialism precisely thrives on the bypassing of indigenous people and creating an environment in which indigenous people are just another oppressed group. But indigenous people are not an add-on. This is why a 1619 project is not going to be sufficient. We need a 1492 project because that's what exposes the transnationality, if you will, of, again, what happens with Muslims and Jews and its imprint on the settler colonies. And Jody Bird herself argues that the logic of settler colonialism is replicated throughout US empire because it transforms those that tend to be colonized into Indians who are politically erased and physically and externally. But of course, it's very complicated because we know that Muslim communities, diasporas have internalized cultures of whiteness, assimilationist politics. I want to be a hyphenated Muslim American, Black American, Asian American, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? But at whose expense does this come from? This Americanness, this assimilation. The only white, per the only person that doesn't have to identify as a high Native American is the white American, because they're assumed to be the native, which is very ironic. But the point further to it is, you know, settler colonialism increases both indigenous and black people, because again, we do have anti-blackness within Muslim communities, because we've actually fought for our right to be recognized as white, something that Muslim communities and Arab communities, particularly, try to reverse at this point, because they realize the ramifications, finally, of being of racializing themselves, let alone being racialized as white, because they're never going to fit in. But indigenous people have been conscripted towards, you know, black enslavement and black people have been conscripted towards indigenous genocide, right? So very much so, and but we also have then Afro-indigenous people, black Cherokees, black Mi'kmaq. This shows how African and indigenous struggles, black and indigenous struggles, decolonial abolition struggles are very much intertwined. And so when it comes to indigeneity, how can we as diasporic settlers then honor the fact that because Af African-Americans that are a consequence of the slave trade, the middle passage are not settlers. This needs to be very set outright. 
and neither surely are indigenous people, but those that came after those, those that were forcibly, that were not forcibly compelled as diasporas, I'm sorry, at some point or another, whether we're African diasporas, whether they were Egyptian, whether even to a certain extent Palestinian, despite the grave catastrophe that Palestinians face, there's an element of settlerhood there that we need to recognize. And so we reap benefits and fruits out of, again, a land that is not traditionally ours. But then how can we return and embrace a certain indigeneity that connects us, number one, spiritually to that land with a, without a sense of ownership to it, mm -hmm. and politically and ethically in relationship to indigenous people and black people that, again, um, were, were forcibly, again, either removed, erased, disappeared, are regarded as signposts to history, or black people that are considered to be, are undergoing very much what's Adia Hartman afterlife to slavery projects. And we need to learn as Muslims from, with the prophetic example, because Muslims were forcibly had to migrate, given what they experienced historically in Mecca and Medina, by polytheist Arabs. But what they did they, they do when they migrated, whether it was to Abyssinia or whether it was to Medina, they respected the land that they were on. They established spiritual and political and ethical covenants with the people and the original caretakers of the land. They didn't just subsume and take what they want and assume that, well, oh, well, now we're just this identity or that identity. No, there was a sense of responsibility. They had to build with the original caretakers of the land. So this is what indigeneity allows for, for us to rediscover Islam, which is a relational religion, as the Quran says, and we've created you from different tribes, nations, so that you may get to know one another. And the best amongst you are those that exercise a kind of taqwa, a kind of piety. What is piety grounded in? Well, in Islam, it's grounded in, again, a spiritual praxis, but also an ethical political commitment to the land, which we're all caretakers of from a theological perspective, because now, again, land is not an object. It belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Land does not have an identity per se that way. Um, except in the relationship that native people, indigenous people have in relationship to it. And of course, it becomes very complicated because even the landscape of indigenous land has transformed. There are different kinds of plants now that are grown there. Uh, the, the urbanized metropolis, a com complete manifestation, a reorientation of, of land in civilizational modernist terms. Right. Uh, and of course, the rule is always cast as progressive and backwards and so on and so forth. But the land is what we connect with because it is what allows us a degree of autonomy. Um, it, it is the first object that colonialism, in a certain sense, ravages and pillages and rapes. Now, if you were joining us, uh, we're in conversation with uh, Dr. Mohammed Abdul uh, about his recent monograph, Islam and Anarchism, Pluto Press 2022. It's a great book. It was a pleasure reading it. Hurry up and order it online. Now, as you, you've experienced it, uh, writing a book is always a, a major endeavor full of obstacles. Uh, breakthroughs and and successes, right? So, what was your experience writing this monograph? I'm always uh, interested <laughs> in you know people's experience uh, experiences writing monograph, as I am uh, in the process of writing my own. Well, I can't wait to read uh, yours, and I hope to inshallah read the man's uh, one day too. Um, you both are very brilliant. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it was agonizing. I'm not going to lie. Um, um, it was agonizing because it took so long. Like I said, it's based on a 15 year MA thesis, but arguably mm -hmm. like a life. Mm -hmm. uh, I was keen to honor in intent, purpose, and action, you know, my, my position as a settler, because it's not about anti-land approximants. I was also very consciousness of what liberalism does, because it hollows out words, slogans, bread, freedom, social justice, as has been placed out in Tahrir, right? Like, okay, well, what do you mean by bread? What do you mean by freedom? What do you mean by social justice? You ask different people, these different 
words and they'll give you a different answer. So we, we are very much living in Aurelian times, right? Of like double speak prophecies and so on. MTN followed out words like axis of evil war against terror, simulated drowning, you know, even preventive war, like civilians killed are referred to as collateral damage. Yeah. And like, you know, extraordinary additions, all these euphemisms because empire likes to operate on euphemisms. So it's, it's written in an English language, which is also agonizing because I'm also an Arab and I love Arabic and I love classical <laughs> Arabic. So, mm. um, uh, and style in Arabic of, of reading, of writing is, is very different, right? Uh, I, I try to write with a syringe instead of a, a, a sword, like to slit a vein and let writing come on its own and, you know, very like George Bataille kind of way, you know? Um, <laughs> so I want it to be emotion I, because I understand that if there's anything, there's, there, there has to be a moving of emotions of the people. But mm. I also had to be trying and be as accessible as possible. Uh, it's also, also, that's a very, very difficult challenge. I, I, we all struggle, of course, with writing that way. There are more blank spaces on a page than with green and black. Um, but it's it's agonizing because I, I have to make this project as accessible as possible. But I'm also of the opinion that one can't complexify that which is simple or simplify that which is complicated. It's an interdisciplinary work, mm -hmm. right? So there has to be a kind of learning and unlearning and unsettling that we're all undergoing through in engaging it and that's not necessarily a bad thing um i wrote this book for people of color predominantly i i've had actually a few indigenous and 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 and, and black sisters that that i really have really trust their opinions and, and they told me that they saw themselves in this which is so humbling um but it's it's also been hard because I had to learn a lot of things. I did not want to write this book 15 years ago, although I had offers to transform the MA into a, into a book at the time. And I really wanted it to be out during the career. Uh, that didn't happen. I was hoping that it could be, you know, a, a means of tools to, to break through the schisms between sort of Islamists and so-called secularists in the context of Egypt. To, because I think in so many ways, that's why, you know, Syria is in the state that it is, Tunis is in the state that it is, and Libya is in the state, of, and so on and so forth, right? Um, but it, it is what it was. And and I I'm, I'm grateful that it came out in the time that it has. Uh, you know, it, it, I had to honor also what I wanted or what I learned from my PhD on, you know, and what I learned from my ethnographic participants, my communities, uh, um, you know, particularly those that are, whether you're talking about queer Nubians, uh, Sudanese, Black, non-Black, queer Palestinians, and so on in the context of Egypt uh, or, or in the context of Turtle Islands, because that really led to the reframing of anarcho-Islam, the MA thesis, my rewriting of it while keeping certain dimensions of the skeleton, uh, if you will, it was the, the theoretical methodological component really came out of the PhD. That's when it all came together. I also wanted to, I mean, to bring in settler colonialism, like all these indigenous studies, black studies, queer feminist studies, uh, you know, anti-colonial, post-colonial, abolitionist studies, Marxism, anarchisms. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, Alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm, I'm very honored, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's been a struggle since it's been out, you know, I, I think you and I, and, you know, spoken to you and Iman, uh, also with regards to this, it is a book that, again, I expected would unsettle. What, what has been a struggle is that, you know, in a certain sense, the active gaping of it, because of course, Marxists don't like it because it's anarchists, anarchists don't like it because I'm dealing with spirituality. Some indigenous folks don't like it because I'm trans looking at transnational notions of indigeneity, certainly certain black scholars or activists, because I don't believe necessarily that one can actually do critical race or black studies without Islamic studies, or at the very least religious studies, because of again, the, the confluence and intersections there. I think Islamic studies actually needs black studies and black studies needs Islamic studies of religion just studies more generally, you know, uh, their complicity in settler colonialism. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's mm. tough to write. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's nice to see certain people receive it that I didn't expect it or receive it well. I mean, it's, it's also, you know, um, a little bit, well, more than a little bit disheartening because nobody wants, you know, to, to literally be blockaded. Um, but yeah, I mean, certain anarchists, white anarchists have, have said that I'm pro- Bashar al-Assad, pro-Russia, pro-China, which is, you know, could not be further from the truth, but it also indicates the, the absence of a certain nuanced reading. This is a nuanced book, or at least I, I try to be as nuanced as possible. Nothing is perfect. Mm. So yeah, but writing is a beautiful thing. And it's a tremendous privilege as a scholar, as an organizer to 
to have this opportunity it really really has been an honor i have to give Pluto Press, you know a great deal of credit you know they, they it was minimal edits i was afraid that they you know edited a lot of stuff out they didn't they really um stuck to the spirit that i wanted to maintain with regards to the book and i'm very grateful for particularly my editor uh, david schulman i i have to give it to him I'm, I'm, and and all those really that have taught me along the way mm-hmm. so um so yeah it's it's been alhamdulillah All right, and we are nearing um, the end of our conversation. Iman, do you want to lead us through the fun questions? (laughs) (laughs) The fun questions? Um, Of course, Bamba has this structure where he asks really like personal questions at the end of these podcasts, which I think is funny and amazing. Mm -hmm. So I know that you've been reading a lot lately, a lot of novels. Maybe this is a uh, maybe this is going to help with answering these questions. Tell us your top three novels, top three dishes, and top three places on your bucket list to visit. And we'll we'll wow. start with the top three novels, Mohammed. We'll start with the top three novels. <laughs> you know, it's Iman that really inspired me because I love fiction. It's really a struggle to answer that question. I actually find this the hardest question. Um, you know, I I really enjoyed uh, revisiting <laughs> Nagib Mahfouz, like uh, the children of uh, uh, Giblawi. I I really did uh, a lot. You know, it's like children of the alley. I guess that's the closest approximation. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, rereading Salim Haddad's like uh, Guaita. Uh, uh, Lemia H. I was, you know, me and me and um, a man were talking about this. Uh, uh, you know, uh, her novel Hijab Butch Blues that I'm going to be teaching. Actually, I like I've incorporated already, inshallah. Uh, Rudolph Guaido's like Allah uh, made us. That's both ethnographic but also fictional in certain ways. Summer Habib's also was really really nice. You know. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, you know it's it's hard to choose, but I, I I'd say any of these like fictional you know Arab Muslim writers mm. uh, are just African writers are are just yeah they they really I think renewed it also traumatized me and I said to man this so I think it would be a nice way to maybe like I don't mean this you know in hopefully a horrible sense but to traumatize my students I think it's a beautiful thing to write in the the first person I I, I don't know if I personally have the courage to to do that not because necessarily i'm incapable but i i really do think it takes a lot of stamina and courage and audacity uh to do that top three dishes top three three dishes that you cannot live without (laughs) (laughs) that i can't live without um maybe i misread that one because i thought you said like the top three dishes that you love but it's it's all well it's somewhat the same uh thing you know what like i you know again i don't mean to be biased it's not just because you know palestine is always in our hearts but because of you know obviously what's happening as we speak right now but you know you know um you know, Malubi is like an uh, it's, it's it's made with like rice and eggplant and and vegetables and you know in, in Gaza I believe they they make it with cauliflower. I've I've never had it with cauliflower. It's like a mm-hmm. casserole dish, you know. Uh, Mensaf, you know, which is amazing. You know, it's lamb like cooked with like yogurt and and burghul. Uh, but then also I like war arnab, you know, mashi war arnab, which Egyptians make and you know like Arabs make in general. You know, in in in. I, I, from my understanding, and uh, I've actually had it once or twice before, but I never liked it as much. Uh, um, I, I, I think in in Gazans uh, are, are very much like Egyptians. They make it like it's a vegetarian, but some Palestinians make it with ground beef. I mm. like it as a vegetarian dish. So tabbouleh, obviously, as a salad. I, I you know, I, I, I love tabbouleh. Um, Manaish, you know, it's just yeah, like all these dishes are the best <laughs> for me. But I, I sound but like also, it sounds like you're a foodie, Mohammed. Yeah, very much. But it's also <laughs> you know, not the healthiest sometimes, or at least some of the dishes uh, are are not the healthiest. But but yeah, um, you know, yeah, I, I yeah, th- there are so many foods, and and yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, so what 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 would you say is your favorite Egyptian restaurant in North America? If you have oh, any, I don't, you know, okay. I can't, 
they like actually there's this breakfast joint uh in Toronto I went there once and uh, it's relatively well known but sorry I'm blanking on it and they make the best like fool like fool is obviously the traditional like bean dish that Egyptians mm-hmm. eat and uh tamia from chickpeas in the morning and um you know and, and oh god I'm really um it's 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 some it's her name's table but I forget I forget what exactly her her name is but anyways I'll okay. inshallah I'll remember it let you know and it's yeah you can share it K- with us <laughs> in K Toronto and it's the most amazing like breakfast like Egyptian mm. traditional that you can get and um and yeah Fatir Michelle did you know like all, all, all kinds of just you know the, the usual traditional Egyptian goodies you know for breakfast or for brunch in the morning so I'd highly recommend um uh, yeah. that place definitely yeah just yeah. send just send send us send me the name afterwards absolutely and then oh I, i will share it i will hopefully have the chance to go there someday also Muhammad, <laughs> you're also going to new york so you're probably going to find a lot of nice this is true this is true. This <laughs> if is anyone, true. If anyone listening to this is based in New York, please send your recommendations to Muhammad to get all please, these. please. Or to me, Iman. I was, and, I'm, and, I'm, and a foodie. I'm a foodie. I'm a food reviewer. Atlanta, on, on Google. New York. On, yeah. <laughs> on Google and, Maps. Not works, <laughs> and not what works with the white man's palate because this is what scares me sometimes about <laughs> Arabic food or just like I want the I'm home, I'm at home sort of type meal where I can just, you know. Put, put my put my like shirt, you know, in a certain sense, my sleeves up, and really dig in with my hands, you know, yeah. not with a knife type thing. You know, I want to I want to eat my fingers afterwards. Exactly, excellent. All right, so the last one, and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, top three places on your bucket list: Palestine, Palestine, okay. Palestine, definitely number one. Okay, um, Palestine. The second, the second one is. Um, Mecca and Medina as a Muslim, particularly Medina, the people of Medina, I am told, um, are a very kind and very humble and very sweet people. Mm-hmm. I'm also afraid if I go to Mecca because, you know, um, I have very strong impulses about, you know, wanting to see the House of Saud dethroned and Mecca and Islam reclaimed. Uh, that's not the <laughs> wisest possibly thing to say, but, you know, I'm going to say it anyways. Um and uh, you know what? Uh, West Africa. I'd really love to go. And uh, where Senegal? Senegal. Uh, just Yay. West. Africa. It's it's you know Bamba. It's to me. I see it as no relevant, no less relevant as a spiritual journey. Is that I know that Palestine is first and actually Mecca and Medina because of Sufi orders and traditions and the huge lineage, particularly with regards to the Qadariya and uh, uh, Tijaniya uh, uh, and Muradiya that exists there, which is so beautiful. And it stretches back even to 12th, 13th century. I mean, we can talk about the Sukhutu Khalifaite and mm-hmm. uh, Uthman uh, and Fadubu. But but yeah, I, I feel that would be such a healing spiritual, particularly with Sufism that I'm very fond of. I don't necessarily identify as a Sufi. I, mm-hmm. I am as a Muslim, I, I don't subscribe to any text, but of course there's the Sufi mm-hmm. dimension to my Islam as much as there's a Shiite, a Sunni, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, dimension to it as well. Mm-hmm. But I think it in so many ways it would be uh, I've never visited uh that part of Africa. I would really love to go. It would be a huge honor. Um you and so many other people being from West Africa, I'd really love to go there uh, someday and have that, inshallah, have that honor of, of spending time there. Well, uh, th- if you yeah. if you do go to Senegal, hit me up. And... Jazakallah khair. Thank you. Thank Excellent. you. It would be such an honor. Uh, Iman, any, so your concluding remarks before we, we part ways for this uh, episode? It was really a pleasure to you know, talk with you again as usual, reconnect. You know, I miss our Cornell uh Cornell days. <laughs> Mohammed, uh, Mohammed, I hope to, you know, you you I look forward to seeing you sometime soon when you get back to the US. Same and thank you again. Please allow me to thank you so, so, so much, you and Iman. I, I owe you so much. You've taught me so much. Your your friendship 
uh, you know, uh, your being there in my time of need, uh, your engagement and labor with this book, you making time out of your busy lives and all your responsibilities, which I know are a lot, a lot, a lot. Thank you so much for just, uh, you know, honoring me with with the opportunity to be with you and to talk about the book. And um, and yeah, thank you. Iman? Um, yeah, um, I am so honored to be part of this conversation. I'm so excited to have Two friends talking about uh, Anarcha Islam, which I didn't think is going to be part of my vocabulary this year, but I'm excited that it is and will be mm -hmm. forever. I think this is a book that everyone should read. Um, I think that, um, especially in our world today, I think there's, there's so much potential um, to what you're putting forth. Um, I think it's a relevant book for people everywhere. And mm -hmm. um, as a Palestinian reader, I enjoyed it thoroughly. As a reader in based currently in the United States, I enjoyed it thoroughly. And as someone who is committed to decolonization, I, I thought it was wonderful and amazing. So please read Muhammad Abdo's book. And um, thank you so much for having me, Bamba. Um, I'm so thank happy you. to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Iman, uh, for co-hosting this uh, episode with me. It's always a pleasure to have uh, colleagues and friends uh, engage with other um, colleagues' scholarship. And Mohammed, uh, I've been wanting you to come to this podcast for a long time, and it is finally, uh, it has finally materialized. So thank you so much for taking time off your uh, busy schedule to uh, talk with me and Iman. And I hope both of you guys will um, have the chance to come back uh this podcast is is yours uh <laughs> come back and talk about talk more about your scholarship you know co-host if you want and and things like that and uh in the meantime um i will give you guys my wonderful audience uh rendezvous uh, for a, another uh, episode of the africanist podcast Uh, stay safe and healthy. Luttons pour la paix. Kondiamo Africa, mon laigna. Manejamo Africa, moi sogno natangue.